and we've got that going. And um, so, but but my uh, my outline here is pretty simple. So I'll give it to you for those of you that like to take notes and, and track the broad points here. Uh, looking at, at chapter 13, we're roughly going to divide this chapter into three sections or three points. The first being, uh, I've called it the problem, infighting among shepherds. That's going to be verses chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Second point being the solution, peaceful coexistence. That's going to be in uh, verses 8 through 13. And then the promise uh, that Abram's descendants will be as the dust of the earth in verses 14 through 18. So uh, without further ado, let's just read chapter 13 all the way through, and then we'll come back and make some, a few points and observations. All right, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which is at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. <clears throat> okay, so let's go back. Uh, and, and take this verse by verse. And like I said, in the first roughly third of this chapter, we see that there's a problem brewing. And uh, the problem is that we have uh, we have infighting. We have parts of this camp that we've seen come out of Egypt um, now, are, uh, now are contending against each other and fighting amongst themselves uh, here when they, when they come back into, uh, into uh, Canaan and into uh, the land where Abram's descendants will ultimately dwell. 
And we notice in verses 1 and 2, Abram went up from Egypt in verse 1, he and his wife and all that he had and along with him into the Negev. And that word for uh, Negev means south. Uh, and so, and let's remember, because this is important to keep in mind when we're thinking about especially a lot of the narrative in the Old Testament, often you'll have a verse like verse 1, um, which seems like kind of a throwaway verse, right? You're just going from point A to point B. But this is a, a, a very long, arduous journey that we're talking about in verse 1, out of Egypt and back up uh, into the south of the Promised Land. And it's going across a, a very desolate region. And, and in verse 2, we see that because Abram was rich in livestock and in silver and gold, it wasn't as though he just uh, got up and went with it with his uh, with his wife and his family, but rather there was a whole cohort that was traveling with him of uh, human beings and of animals, and so uh, this was uh, quite the caravan to see. I, I, I'm certain. Uh, so it it wasn't easy uh, this journey that they made, and and oftentimes it's not easy for us when we have to go from one place to another when we're in a transition, and it's especially difficult if like Abram in this story, we're, we're making a transition because of a mistake we've made, right? Abram, uh, however you read that story that we covered last week where Abram and Sarai are in Egypt, and I talked about some different possibilities there, but anyway, you slice it, Abram messes up in that story, right? He puts his wife in this terrible position, uh, and, uh, and God makes it work out for his benefit uh, because this is a part of God's plan. Uh, but Abram still has to make this long journey, and he still has to go across this wilderness to get back into the land that his descendants will dwell in. So when he gets there, you know, we see that they, they have this hard journey to make in verses 1 and 2. And then when he gets there, he returns to his place of worship that he'd built previously, and he calls upon the Lord in verses 3 and 4. So he he comes to Bethel, and he remember, he's already made that, that altar there in, in, in chapter 12 at Bethel. And we talked about the idea that Abram is someone who's dropping breadcrumbs in the form of altars uh, or places of worship for God. Uh, he's dropping breadcrumbs for the Lord wherever he goes. And so this is something we want to be doing as well. We've talked about this. We make the center of our lives the worship of the Lord. And, and when we say worship, we don't just mean uh, what we do here together. Uh, we don't just mean this this thing that we're doing on Sunday, although this is certainly worship and, and and our communal worship is an important part of our spiritual lives. But our, our, our lives themselves should be made up of worshipfulness, should be uh, characterized by uh, worship wherever we are, whatever we are doing. And I think we see that exemplified in Abram. He he returns to this place where he had already set the conditions that would make it possible for him to worship the Lord there between Bethel and Ai. And so this altar is already there and they have a place to worship and to, and to offer sacrifices. And then uh, we see uh, in verses five, uh, in verses five and six, the problem starts to take shape, right? And there, there are several elements to this problem. And one is a problem of resources. If you look at verse 5, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, uh, so that, in verse 6, the land could not support them both dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Okay, so there's there's a lot that we could say there, but uh, just to break it down in the context of Abram and then maybe extrapolate out what some of this might mean for us, 
Um, there, there was an issue where there, there is uh, a lot of animals and a limited amount of food. And so um, the servants, uh, the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abram are striving together, trying to collect food uh, for the uh, for the the animals that they are uh, tasked with. with before, you know, Abram and Lot are not out every morning uh, collecting, uh, you know, you know, uh, food and water for their own livestock, uh, but rather they have servants and shepherds which do this for them. And uh, but but it becomes difficult when, uh, as we know, they, they left this area because there was a famine in the land. And we don't know with certainty whether that's still going on, but it's certainly a possibility that it is. And so resources are scarce in any case. There, there's this conflict, right? And I, I, I think we see some important lessons about how we resolve conflict. And we'll <clears throat> we'll talk about that more fully here in, in just a minute. But I, I, I can't help but seize on this phrase uh, at the end of verse 6, where it says, their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And I, I think that this is a big part of our problem in this country today, at, at the risk of sort of pulling this passage out of its original context and applying it to us. But I, I think it does work in that way that the more things that we have, the more contention we tend to have with our, with our brothers. Uh, it, I mean, I, that's certainly what I've found, and I think we do find that in our Christian walks, that the more uh, we, we have prospered, the more blessed we've been, and we certainly thank God for those things. But the more blessings we have, the more prosperous we are, the more we tend to get myopic and caught up in our own perspective and our own uh, our own. Uh, acquiring of things and preserving those things and, and defending those things instead of dwelling one with another as, as a family. So I, I think we need to be very careful and take stock that um, our, our wealth does not grow such that, that we cannot dwell with one another, that we cannot properly uh, relate to one another uh, person to person, brother to brother, as opposed to, uh, you know, um, higher ups and, and, and lowers. And not that this is a problem here in this church. Uh, we, I think uh, most people are, 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 are very uh, understanding of the fact that Christ calls us away from the material world and uh, to uh, separate ourselves uh, from those things. But, uh, but I think it's something that we need to remind ourselves of, that uh, it, it can be an obstacle to our fellowship uh, to be prospered too much. And so we should pray that if the Lord is going to prosper us, he would prosper us so that we might not uh, grow prideful and vain, but rather that we would be in, uh, drawn to more thankfulness and, and, and more praise for his goodness when we are uh, blessed with, with possessions and blessings. Uh, another layer to this problem that I think we see in the beginning of verse 7 is a problem of cohesion, right? There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So um, these, we get the idea here that these men who had been, some had been working for Abram and some had been working for, for Lot, but we, had, we have no indication that there had been strife before. They had been dwelling, it seems, um, as essentially one unit, although some, some of these servants serve Lot, some of them serve Abram. Um, but, uh, there, there, there is no uh, contention there. There's no division of wills. 
But uh, when times become harder, there is more conflict, right? Uh, so, so this is an issue of cohesion. And the camp of Abram is not going to hold together as long as this cohesion is going on. And, and so the camp of Christ, which we are a part of, uh, the fellowship of Christ, the body of Christ, which we enter into, uh, and, and the body of Christ here in Vacaville um, will not hold, will not remain if there is strife between, uh, between uh, brothers, between servants of the Lord. And, and so we should always uh, strive to um, de-escalate and uh, um, alleviate conflicts that, 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 that arise sometimes between brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, because, as Abram is going to point out in verse 8, jumping ahead of myself slightly, there should be no strife between us as brethren. There should be no strife uh, if we are uh, all conformed uh, and all tr uh, to the image of Christ and transformed by the same gospel. So uh, there is a problem of resources. There is a problem of cohesion. And in the end of verse 7, I think we see there is a problem of vulnerability, right? Because at this time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are dwelling in the land. So there's not enough food to go around. The herdsmen are fighting. And to make matters worse, there are enemies around. There are enemies present in the land who are seeking weaknesses in the people of the Lord, in, in Abram's camp specifically, because God has chosen Abram to be the instrument through which uh he, uh, the, the descendants of Abram will come to dwell in the land. And he has chosen Abram to ultimately start the links in this chain that will bring about the Messiah when we get to the New Testament. So uh, there is a lot at stake here, is what I'm saying. It, it actually is much more important than it might appear on the surface that uh, all these flocks get food and water and that uh, Abram's camp is not overtaken by the Perizzites and the Canaanites. So uh, th this is a big issue. And, and I'll point out, though, before we move ahead, that, uh, again, these same problems can be issues for us today. When we, when we are strained over resources, we tend not to uh, consider each other uh, brethren like we should. We tend not to be as friendly as with one another when things are strained. Um, when, when there are difficult times, there can often be a, a problem of cohesion where we don't relate one with another as we should. And certainly in difficult times, there is a big problem of vulnerability, right? When life throws difficulties at us, this is when we're the most vulnerable. And we know that we, just like Abram and just like Lot, we have an enemy that is working against us. And that is Satan. That is the devil. And so when we give him occasion, uh, he will take advantage of. He is watching for an opening uh, and a vulnerability that he can uh, manipulate. And so uh, I think we see modeled in Abram in verse 8 um, the correct attitude when it comes to diffusing conflicts between brothers. And in this case, uh, Lot is his uh, material kin, his physical kin. But when we, we can spiritualize this point for us in the, in the church today, um, that there need be no strife between brothers. In fact, we are called to unity. So the second point, the solution here is um, peaceful coexistence. Now, I thought about using the phrase peaceful separation, and that might even be more accurate. 
but um, they are both still dwelling in what will be the future promised land, although uh, some of the areas that, uh, that Lot is ultimately going to dwell in are going to be uh, contested uh, and controlled by different people at different points. Um, but this is all uh, land that was within the purview of, of what God uh, had, had promised them. And so uh, Abram says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. So no fighting among family. This is a, this is a, a principle that we should take to, uh, to the New Testament and to the church today. And a few passages uh, just to sort of translate this into New Testament terms. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn there with me real quick. I think it's interesting to, uh, to bring up this verse because we have essentially the same idea here, but in more of a, a context that we might find more recognizable. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's read verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the, and if the world is to be judged by you are, you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you, had su so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? <clears throat> I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So here we see uh, that, that uh, contentions within the church are to be handled as brothers, not uh, not by bringing in some outside party. You know this this situation that we see in Genesis chapter thirteen very well could have led to further conflict between Abram and Lot. Families have been torn apart by less in the past, but because Abram is willing to uh, sort of give Lot the upper hand and let him take his pick, um, and because Abram makes it a point that he wants there to be no strife between him because he's he, he, he states in no uncertain terms to Lot that he seeks to avoid conflict, well, uh, th then uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the situation sort of uh, resolves itself. Uh, and, and, of course, there will be problems later on for Lot that are a consequence of this decision, and we'll get there in a second. But, um, but I think that the, the handling of this situation by Abram is, is quite good. Turn to, uh, turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 and verse 26. Acts chapter 7 um, and verse 26, and, and this is Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, and, and he's sort of giving a, a summary of what will happen in uh, the next book of the Bible, actually, uh, after Genesis, Exodus, um, in the beginning of the Moses story where uh, he be, Moses becomes a sort of outlaw in Egypt. And, and he recounts this incident, starting in verse 23, when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Okay, so uh, again, we have this idea of the brethren should not contend one with another. And of course, in, in, in the Old Testament context, and specifically as the, the, the traditions of, of, of the nation of Israel arose, uh, the, the word brother was thought of uh, somewhat narrowly as being your kinsmen, your countrymen, your, 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 fellow, uh, your fellow children of Israel, more or less. But with Christ, we have this, this, this idea of brotherhood expanded out, right, to universality. We are all uh, children of God in some sense. And, and so there is no limit to who is our neighbor. And, and specifically, brotherhood in Christ, um, it, it is not bound anymore by nationality or by, um, or by where one has come from, but rather uh, we are all brothers. And so there should be no strife between us, no matter who we are and no matter where we have come from. Uh, in verse nine, it's better to have less and be whole than to have more and be destroyed. Um, uh, Abram said, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. All right. Well, I think this brings in uh, a, an idea that, that, that Christ talked about in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 7 through 9. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9. says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with, uh, than with two hands and, or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes than than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay, so Jesus says it's better to uh, it's better to be maimed. It's better to uh, it's better to be uh, cut up, torn apart. It's better to be separated um, than than to uh, enter whole into destruction. So uh, if the situation in Genesis 13 had remained as it was, destruction would have been the result. There was a problem. There was there were vulnerabilities. There was not enough food to go around, and so uh, th this was something that was necessary. Um, but it is also something that that led to certain consequences. It's often been said that um, you know Lot chooses this uh, the Jordan Valley because it's it's more um, uh, pleasing to the eye, land that that according to all the metrics of um, measuring the goodness of land seems like the best land you could get, right? It's all green. It says it's like the garden of the Lord. And so it, it, it's always been hard for me to blame Lot too much for this decision that he makes. It seems like a bit of a no-brainer, right? Um, but 
also, but, you know, and I, I've heard people sort of level this criticism against Lot that he was judging on the surface of things. And certainly I think there's some legitimacy to that, that, uh, and this is something that Mark talked about in his thing and something that, uh, that I briefly tried to touch on in my lesson on uh, Blessed Are the Meek, in our lesson on our lesson series on the Beatitudes that we're doing. The appearances of things are often deceiving. The appearances of things are often um, are, are often not as they seem. Uh, and so certainly we could criticize Lot for uh, putting too much stock in the way things appear and in the way that the world judges what is good and what is not good. But it's also notable that Abram gives him the choice, right? Lot could have just as easily said, I want the other land, and then Abram's got to go where Lot went. Um, so the situation that we're going to see unfold later uh, in, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Lot having to be rescued miraculously by the Lord from Sodom and Gomorrah, um, it could have just as easily been, been Abram in that situation. Now we can talk about God's divine providence factoring into this, and we can talk about the fact that Abram... Um, put himself in a, in the better position by being gracious, by offering Lot the choice. Um, but ultimately, uh, this choice is going to lead to uh, a a different a difference in 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 life, uh, a difference in in path, and a difference in outcome for Lot and, and Abram because they are going to go their separate ways. All right, so uh, it's better to to separate than to than to enter to destruction. Um, now, this is a way that they can peacefully coexist, though. They, they, they live on either side of the Dead Sea. If you look at a map of this, the Dead Sea separates where uh, Lot is living and where, and where Sodom, or, you know, excuse me, where uh, Abram is living. And so uh, we, we have this sort of natural boundary. They're separated now, but they also are, are dwelling peacefully. And we're going to see later when the time comes uh, for Abram to rescue Lot, He's going to be right there to do so. So they still function a, as one family, um, but but we see that that they find a a a, a way of living that that accommodates the, the the problems that they're working through. So verses ten through eleven, I think we see Lot makes a wise choice by by external indications, right? In verses ten and eleven, uh, the 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 Jordan Valley is watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Uh, it, 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 it's as green as the land of Egypt, which they just came from, and we know there was plentiful food there. So, uh, Abr I mean, Lot looks at this land and says, well, if I live here, I'm going to be set. I'm going to have plenty of food and water, and uh, it's going to be awesome. <clears throat> so Lot chooses for himself the good land, and, and, and they separate. And again, it's hard to really blame Lot for this uh, because he has the choice. Uh, Abram has told him he can take whatever land that he wants. Uh, but if we are thinking about spiritual indications, if we're thinking about the spiritual consequences of this choice that Lot makes, uh, then there is uh, some something to be desired here. So verses 12 and 13, Abram settles in the land of Canaan uh, and, and Lot settles in uh, the, the Jordan River Valley. And we get this sort of offhanded comment in verse 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And uh, it's almost like the Bible is saying, hold that thought, <laughs> because uh, that's going to come back here in a minute. Uh, and it is. 
uh, and we see that Lot's life is going to be altered forever by this choice that he makes in un undoubtedly negative ways. They, there's no way to construe what happens to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah positively. But um, the will of the Lord is, I will just point out, brought about through this decision as well. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are ultimately destroyed, and, and Lot is uh, ransomed and rescued from that destruction uh, when that destruction comes. And so uh, even, even when we see characters in these stories making what we would consider to be wrong turns, God always finds a way to bring this uh, into his plan and fold it into his will so that, uh, so that what he intends to happen happens and what he wants to accomplish is accomplished. So up to this point, we've, we've seen that there's a big problem, problem of resources, problem of cohesion, problem of vulnerability. The solution is we peacefully separate and we coexist on different sides of the Dead Sea, Lot and Abram. Um, and and, uh, and Abram, uh, you know, we could say goes by more spiritual indications and Lot might go uh, more by uh, the way that things appear. And we understand that uh, for us, we walk by faith and, and not by sight. And as Mark talked about this morning, that verse is specifically in reference to um, the hope that we have in heaven and what we are looking for in the life to come. But um, I, I want us to turn actually to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16 and uh, verse uh, 49, because this is going to help explain some of what's going to happen later with, with, with Sodom. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49, it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. All right, so again, we have this idea that um, where there is excess uh, wealth, where there is excess resources, there is an increased burden. There is an increased uh, um, onus put upon the one who ha has gained these things, and there is an increased likelihood for, uh, for strife and for, and for contention. And because the lands of so or the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were so prosperous, uh, they had grown cold, they had grown unloving, uh, and, and we're going to see they had grown perverse. And, and, and so, again, uh, we are sometimes, I think, at risk of, of falling into this same syndrome in the culture that we live in, uh, where, where we, we judge based on the surface, based on the external, based on the material, as opposed to the spiritual. Uh, and one, one more quick verse here. Turn with me to uh, 2 Peter. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 addresses some of these same concepts, starting in verse 4. 2 Peter chapter through 10. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds until he saw, uh, uh, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord uh, knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay, so again, bringing this into a New Testament context, we see Peter echoing this idea that the destructions that were brought on the world in the time of the flood in Sodom and, and, and Gomorrah, um, these are, are precursors to the judgment to come, and they are indications of what will happen in that day. And so, the choice that Abram and Lot are faced with somewhat uh, mirrors the choice that we make when we enter either into life or into death. Sometimes the, the, the path that is laid out before us by the world and by Satan appears very green, appears very lush, appears like it uh, is prosperous. But the, the narrow way, the more barren land, uh, the the what seems to be the harder path to walk from the vantage point of this flesh, of this life, um, is actually the most blessed way. Um, the way is wide, we've been told, that leads to destruction, and many will go through it. The way is narrow that leads to life, and there will be few who find it. So we see the problem, we see the solution. Uh, when there is fighting, we must find ways to uh, to coexist. Um, we must find ways to continue uh, the work of the Lord. And uh, the Lord will no doubt bring about his will, uh, regardless of, of what we may hear. But uh, we have choices to make, nonetheless. We have um, important uh, inflection points at which we must decide, am I going to be in the world, or am I going to come out of the world and make God my portion and my sustenance. All right, so we have the problem, we have the solution, and the solution is peacefully dwelling with one another while relying on the will of God and not trusting in appearances. All right, well then, now we have God reiterating his promise at the end of this chapter in verse 13. Verses 14 through 18, God is going to um, demonstrate in a, in a tactile sense this uh, the, this land inheritance that he is going to give to uh, Abram's descendants. He says to him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So God says, look up, look around in every direction. You see all this land. This is all the land that your children will dwell in. You know, it's it's one thing to be promised something, and it's one thing to be assured of something, but when you're shown it, it's something else. We talked about that also a little bit this morning, talking about the idea of we have uh, uh, faith in this life, we have trust in this life that God will deliver his promises, but when we arrive in the world to come, when we arrive in the resurrection, we will need no faith and no trust, for we will dwell face to face with God and commune freely with him, unbounded. So when we dwell 
um, the Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look. Abram's now seeing it in person. He's looking at the land where his where his descendants will dwell. And he's already seen this land. God's already shown him this. But God reiterates. And God, I specifically like the image of Abram having to turn in a full circle and look in every direction in order to see the fullness of all that God will give him. Sometimes, I mean, again, uh, not to to just... Uh, make a hack preacher point here and just completely spiritualize this. But sometimes if we spend too long looking in one direction, we lose perspective. We need to look all the way around. We need to see in every direction the promises of God. It's not enough to just remember them, but we have to re-examine them. We have to see them anew in order to keep our faith growing, in order to keep our faith fresh. But he doesn't just uh, he doesn't just show this uh, to Abram, he gives him a further assurance in verse 16 that your offspring will be as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And again, <clears throat> this is a reiteration of the promise that God has already made to Abram, but it, it, it's a powerful idea that as many as there are particles of dirt on this planet, that's how greatly the uh, the return will be on this investment, so to speak, that God is making. Abram will bear so much fruit that it will be uh, incalculable. And, and we know that the goal of our walk here as Christians is to bear fruit, is to bring a harvest for God. And so we should uh, strive for uh, uh, many spiritual descendants in the same way that Abram wanted many physical descendants. We want to spread this gospel to as many people as we humanly can. Um, but it also is a comfort and a blessing to see that we are the offspring that God promises to Abram here. We, we, we most of us anyway, uh, probably can't claim some, uh, you know, direct lineage from Abram uh, like we might try to do if if we were you know uh, Jewish or Arabic, but uh, but we are all we have all been grafted into this tree of faith through Christ and through entering into faith in Him and into entering into His body um, through the watery grave of baptism. And so when we are raised a new creature, we are also raised a child after the promise of Abram. We are one of these kernels of sand. Uh, or, or that's the wrong word. A kernel of corn uh, is a kernel. Uh, sand has grains. We are these grains of sand that God promises to Abram here. And then uh, in verse 17, he has him walk it. He says, walk the length and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. And now th this is not a small thing that God is asking of Abram. This is a, a pretty big area of land. I mean, uh, if you think about the the modern country of of Israel today, which doesn't even cover all of its borders, doesn't even cover all of this uh, this land that's been promised uh, to Abram. Uh, it's still uh, a bit of a task to walk the the width and breadth of an entire nation and an, an entire geographical region. But God tells him to do that, and Abram does it. Uh, and again, this is one of those things where I think it's helpful to picture the 
the, the patriarchs at about half of their age that, that that's given because that probably would have been about their strength and vigor. Um, so Abram is a very old man at this point by our standards, but he still seems to be capable of walking the breadth and lift or the, the, the width and breadth of this, um, of this, uh, land. Uh, so I, again, this is a further demonstration. God says, you've seen it. I've told you that your descendants are going to be as many as the sand, as, as many as, as the, the, the dust of the earth. And then in verse 17, and just so I make this clear to you, I'm going to make you put your feet on every spot of this land to show you uh, that 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 uh, this is where your children will dwell and to show you uh, the whole of the land and the whole of the promise that I have made them. This is the level at which God is willing to accommodate Abram. He takes this land that is it God's to give and gives it freely to Abram um, as a as a uh, as a covenant uh, a, 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 an agreement entered into between God and Abram uh, by faith. And now that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? We are given our promised land. Uh, we are we are uh, given grace. We are given our land of milk and honey, which is Christ, the person of Christ, whom we inhabit and whom we mold ourselves after. Uh, we are given that and we are told to explore. We are told to get comfortable and look around. This is where we live now. This is our life. And then finally, in verse 18, Abram moves his tent and he comes and settles by uh, the oaks of Mamre, uh, which it will later be called Hebron, uh, almost from, from this point out. Um, and there he builds an altar to the Lord. And again, we're dropping breadcrumbs. So wherever Abram goes, there will be worship involved. And that in and of itself is an important lesson for us to take in. Abram uh, lived on the opposite side of the Dead Sea from, from Lot, and he worshiped God there. Now, it seems that Lot also worshiped God uh, where he lived. Um, but we have on opposite sides of this gulf, faith being practiced. But the difference is, on Abram's side of the Dead Sea, there are, um, Abram is proactively creating the conditions that will institute worship beyond the boundaries of his lifetime. He's made an altar, which is something of a permanent structure, or at least semi-permanent, and uh, it is meant for his descendants to worship there. There's a relationship between the promise that God is giving him of heirs and Abram's continual insistence on establishing altars of worship. He knows that the world that God is giving him is the world that his children will occupy, the world that his children will live in. And so the world we're making now is the world that our children and our grandchildren will have to live in. And even for those of us who don't have kids like me, you can think about this as um, even the people who come after you will be affected by the things that you do here in this life. Are you creating the conditions that will allow for the thriving of worship to God in the future? 
This is an important question. It's not just about, will there be a church in my lifetime? It's not just about, will there be followers of Christ in my lifetime? It's about how can we best um, see this thing through as far as God will see it through? How can we uh, try to plan as far ahead as God is? And of course, we understand that uh, God's time is not our time uh, and that the Lord could return at any point and that this may all be uh, all of our, our plans for the future may be, uh, may be for naught. But if, if life here is going on, if we're having children, if we're uh, marrying and being given in marriage, um, we need to be concerning ourselves with the world that those who come after us will inhabit. And the world we live in now needs the Lord uh, in a way that is hard to even put into words, how badly the world needs the gospel. And it's always needed the gospel this badly. It's not as though there's something special about this time. But I think for many of us, there's a concern specifically about this culture, about the way things are going. Um, and a lot of us look into the future and we feel that things may be um, things may be really tough, things may be bleak um, for our children and our grandchildren when it comes to practicing uh, the faith as we have known it um, with, with with freedom. But as I've talked about it in, in recent weeks, this really uh, should be something that we leave in the hands of God, and we, like Abram, uh, do what we can to build our altars here. And then we say, Lord, you've made your promises. I trust in you to bring them about. And uh, the word will go forward in whatever form it goes. I was having a conversation with, uh, with Mark and Jenny the other night. And we discussed the fact that, you know, the church is growing by leaps and bounds in other parts of, of the world. The church is, is growing um, in Asia and Africa in ways that are pretty historically unprecedented. And so it may be that we've seen the best days uh, for the church here. And this is not to be pessimistic, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and shouldn't evangelize. Um, but even if it's true that the church going forward in this country will not be what it has been, the gospel will go forward no matter what. There will be no stopping the gospel. And so, just as God's will could not be thwarted in the life of Abraham, God's will will not be thwarted when it comes to the spread of the gospel. So we need to keep our eyes on the prize. What is, uh, what is the prize? The prize is heaven. This is our promise. The resurrection is the promise that we have to look forward to that's been demonstrated to us in the person of Christ. We've been shown what kind of resurrection we will be given in the resurrection of our Lord. We will share in his resurrection in the last day, and we will be glorified as he was glorified. The problem is we strive with ourselves. We are not whole. There is a part of us that wants to destroy us, and there is a part of us that wants to live eternally with God. And the process of coming into Christ is the solution. The, the gospel of Christ is the solution. And in that solution, we kill that person that wants to destroy us, that lives within us. 
That's the old man that we put to death, that we nailed to the cross. And we raise as a new creature that part of us that wishes to commune with God in some real way, in some substantive spiritual sense that we cannot yet fully comprehend, but which we move closer and closer to day by day. And the promise we've been given is that as unbounded and as unlimited as Abram's descendants were, so will be our experience in the resurrection and in heaven. And with, in light of that promise, every problem seems to fall by the wayside of insignificance. Just as I'm sure to Abram, seeing the beauty and the magnitude and the, uh, the length and breadth of the land, cast out of his mind any concerns about, uh, about the tiff that he may have had with Lot. And in any case, they'll be reconciled later. But it just goes to show us that we have to keep the promise in mind always. Even when we face problems here, even when there is strife here, the solution is always found in Christ and our direction is always found in our heavenly hope. That's all I had prepared for this evening. But if you have not yet become a child of God, um, I don't know that there's anyone here who hasn't, but uh, I always do this even when we're on WebEx because I think it's so important. Uh, if there's anyone who wants to become a child of God who may be listening to this call or, or on this call in any way, it's the most important thing you could ever do. It, it begins your walk toward that eternal hope that we discussed this morning and that, that we touched on again this evening. And if you already are a child of God, and, and this, is, uh, this is especially true, I, I was touched by, by Larry coming forward this morning and, and uh, asking us to pray for him and his physical need. And in the same way, we should all be unafraid to um, request one another, either privately or publicly, that we pray for one another, that we support one another and uplift one another in prayer. Um, and we all have things that we are struggling with. Uh, at this time. It's been a rough year for all of us, and so I think we could all use prayer and support. But if anyone particularly needs prayer and support, don't be afraid to make that known. Um, we've been praying for uh, for Riley, for, uh, for um, Lucy's grandson, and uh, we, we will continue to do that. Um, but, and anything like that, any family member, or any, anything that's occupying space in your mind um, that needs alleviating, that needs uh, divine healing, um, we can do that for each other through prayer. It's a powerful tool, a powerful mechanism that we have. So um, if any have need for prayer and for support, please make that known as well as we sing the song that has been announced. <laughs>